You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. There's one threat actor that we've seen continually that's known as Gootloader. The lures that they use and the social engineering that they use is for documents that contain legal agreements or something of that sort. Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to the Hacking Humans podcast. Every week, we delve into the world of social engineering scams, phishing plots, and criminal activities that are grabbing headlines and causing significant harm to organizations all over the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hey, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Aaron Walton. He's a threat intel analyst with a company called Expel. We're going over some of the details of their annual threat report. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. Time travel would be a particularly powerful tool in the hands of any overworked InfoSec professional. Think about it. Being able to see the future and know which malicious emails would be missed by all the existing filters. Your ability to stay one step ahead of the bad actors would rise to a whole new level. Unfortunately, our sponsors haven't cracked time travel just yet. They are, however, introducing a new phishing protection product that can block and remove dangerous phishing emails before your users even see them. Stay with us, and in a few minutes, you'll learn how. All right, Joe, before we jump in here, a little bit of follow-up. What do we got? Yeah, Dave, Matush writes in, and Matush is a Polish guy living in Ludwig Ludwigshaven, Germany. <laughs> okay. And I'm sure my high school German teacher is reaching through the podcast to smack me in the back of the neck for messing <laughs> up say, the pronunciation. Yeah, all right. Ludwig, Ludwigshaven. Ludwigshaven. Yeah, Ludwigshaven. Ludwigshaven. Easy for you to say. Yes. Uh, anyway, he just said, I wanted to quickly share something positive. Mm-hmm. Hey, how often do we get good news on this radio, That's right. This show. Um, uh, looking for a remote desktop solution to deploy in my home lab, I have landed on the website for Rust Desk. Hmm. This is an open source alternative to TeamViewer. Uh, as we know, those kinds of applications serve a double-edged, serves as a double-edged sword. They make the lives of both system admins and scammers easier. On the top of the web page, there is a very visible warning message. Hmm. It says, and I, I've actually pasted it from the webpage uh, <laughs> because I, I wanted to see this for myself. You know, not that I don't trust Metouche. I'm sure he's correct, but uh, it says, warning, you may be being scammed. If you are on the phone with someone you don't know and don't trust who has asked you to install Rust Desk, do not install and hang up immediately. They are likely a scammer trying to steal your money or other private information. Hmm. Maytush goes on to say, this is a very responsible reaction from the Rust test team. They are aware of the use case for their application, the malicious use case, uh, and they took an effort to warn potential scam victims. So kudos to Rust, Rust Desk and to you guys. I love the show. Uh, you make the social engineering side of cybersecurity very entertaining. <laughs> Sometimes it's just sad to listen to. But it, <laughs> we do try to make it entertaining. Right. We laugh through the tears. Yes, we do laugh through the tears. <laughs> I really enjoy driving to work and listening to your voices. Oh, that's nice. I uh, wish you all the best. Thank you, yeah. Matush. Thank, Thank you for sending much. us in. And yes, kudos to Rust Desk. Very yeah. good. 
Rust Desk, not the best name to roll off the tongue. Kind of no, a tongue No, Rust but... Desk. No, that is a hard word to say. Yes. Mm. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for writing in. And of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's some feedback you have for us, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. All right. I'm going to kick things off with our stories here this week. And uh, my story comes from the CBC. This is written by Erica Johnson. That is the Canadian Broadcasting Company? That is the Canadian Broadcasting Company. This is from CBC News. And uh, Erica found herself being wooed by a scammer, really? by a romance scammer. Yes. I'm hopeful that Erica did not fall for this. Uh, she did not. Okay, good. But, <laughs> but, but it's, it's interesting. In fact, uh, well, let's go through it bit by bit. Okay. So she was contacted by this scammer who claimed to be named Bobby Brown. It's my prerogative, Joe. It's right, Bobby, that's Bobby right. Brown. It's my prerogative. <laughs> not that Bobby Brown. Okay, a different Bobby Brown. No, this was an oil drilling engineer living in Scotland. Hmm. who expressed romantic interest uh, after finding Erica's social media profile online. Do you know one of the things that oil drillers are known for is they make money, Dave, a lot oh, of it. that's true. Yeah. It's also an extraordinarily uh, dangerous job, right? And Which distant, is why they make a lot of money. <laughs> often, yes, and often distant. Yeah, right. Remote, I should say. So Erica is hip to these kinds of scams, and Good. she said that she normally ignores them. Mm-hmm. But uh, she decided that uh, she would go, she was going to play along with this one. Okay. So right away, uh, Bobby quickly attempted to deepen their connection by asking for Erica's mobile phone number mm. and uh, using uh, terms of endearment in in the the communications. Uh, Erica says he came on pretty heavy and his English didn't always make sense. Mm. <laughs> he said, well, you are really an interesting woman. I would love to be a part of you. I want you to be mine and I want to love you till the end of the world. Uh, he also said his favorite meal was macaroni and spaghetti with garlic. <laughs> that sounds disgusting. <laughs> right. <laughs> what? So, macaroni and spaghetti with, with garlic. garlic. Yeah, I mean, ah. macaroni and spaghetti. I mean, it's good to mix up your pasta. No, no, it isn't, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of anything. <laughs> you know, at home, we make our own pasta, Dave. Oh, wow. Okay. Most particularly my son, who has recently taken to doing this, uh-huh. uh, loves making his own. And he, are you are you the, the Italian Kerrigans? Yeah, that's right. We're the Italian, <laughs> the Italian Kerrigans. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And uh, no, actually, we uh, we've we've learned to do this actually from some people with some Italian heritage. Okay, uh, but it's it really makes a. There is nothing that compares to fresh pasta, mm-hmm. and I can think of nothing worse <laughs> than having two different kinds of pasta in uh, one meal. Okay, I, I really <laughs> makes you want to. What makes you want to spin up things Joe hates, doesn't yes, it? it does. <laughs> makes you want to bring back that gem. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on, uh, Bobby sent her a photo of a street in Edinburgh, um, Edinburgh, where uh, he claimed to live. Uh, isn't that Edinburgh? Or is that Edinburgh? Edinburgh? Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh. Edinburgh. I don't know how you pronounce okay. it. Uh, yeah, probably. The- I, I, let's let's count on the fact that I'm mispronouncing it and okay. go from there. Please don't write in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he sent in a picture of a street in Scotland. Uh, where the cars were parked on the wrong side of the street. Hmm. And uh, so Erica was suspicious of this. Right. Uh, So after six weeks of back and forth, Bobby proposed, asked Erica to marry him. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so she confronted him and said, look, I know you're a scammer. Uh, can we just be honest with each other? And Bobby said, yeah, okay. I'll tell you my story. Huh. Um, now, now, first off, this is interesting. Yeah. I'm interested that Bobby did this. Uh, Bobby, not his real name. Correct. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm the fact that, that he just said, okay, I know the jig's up. Let's continue talking. Yeah. Why, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just move on to the next scam victim? I don't know. I mean, you know, aren't we all just looking for a little human connection from yeah. time to time? Yeah, now Perhaps. now that now the veil is down, I can be honest and have a frank conversation with somebody. Right. Maybe he wants somebody that. on the other side of the world. These guys are people too, right? Yeah. So uh, Bobby revealed that he was actually from Nigeria mm -hmm. and that he'd been driven to fraud by poverty and that he worked for a boss who took half of the money that he scammed. Okay. And he is one of the Yahoo boys that we've talked about. Yes. For the the particular uh, label that these scammers out of Nigeria get. Oh, they've given it themselves, given it to themselves. Yeah, yeah. Right. But when you join up, yeah, you become a Yahoo boy. Right. So um, he described to her how they go about things um, using stolen images, which is what he used in this case. The, the photo of uh, the alleged Bobby was actually stolen from a German Facebook page. Uh, ha quite handsome gentleman, might I add. Did he wear a kilt? Uh, no. Well, okay. you couldn't see him from the waist down, so right. who knows? So maybe. <laughs> right. Um, and they were targeting emotional vulnerabilities to try to get money from people. Uh, he mentioned two scams in particular. One is called The Method, and The Method is one where they ask women for photos of Apple or iTunes gift cards, and then they trade the cards, or they trade the codes on the cards on the black market in exchange for cash. Right. Now, uh, he says what he would sometimes do is that he would tell his victims that he needed gift cards to buy data for his phone and that he was having trouble accessing his bank account from another country but desperately wanted to stay in touch. So using Makes the pressure of, if you, if you don't send me this right. gift card, I won't be able to communicate with that you anymore. That is a good line, yeah. actually. Right, yeah. especially if Very you have plausible. established... Yeah. And it will impact the relationship if you don't do it because I won't be able to talk to you, not right. by any choice of my own, yeah. says the scammer. Here I am, stuck on this oil rig right. in the middle of the North Atlantic. Yep. Um, and then the other scam was called billing. Uh, and in this scam, um, he would send a frantic text to the woman that he was courting, telling her that his young son living in the U.S. had to be rushed to an emergency room and that he needs to send the hospital a $3,000 deposit but he can't access his bank account. And uh, because it's such a big ask, uh, he will text the woman a photo of his son in a hospital bed with doctors at his bedside, hmm. which, of course, is a fake photo. It's also fake. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he, but he says, he says, he sends that proof, and whatever he asks of her, she gives to me. That's what he said. Really? Yeah. So uh, he says that he's remorseful, but he justifies his actions by the need to support his family in, amid uh, challenging economic conditions in Nigeria. Um, and uh, the story really talk, you know, highlights the psychological manipulation in these romance scams and um, sort of outlines some of their motivations. Yeah. So interesting story. This guy is doing quite well for a Nigerian in terms of the amount of money he's raking in from these scams. Even if he's only keeping half of it, yeah, he's doing pretty well. I would I, imagine I would so. Bet. Yeah, if he's making three thousand dollars a pop, I think the average annual income. This data might be old, and I might be misremembering, but it's 
it's less than $3,000. Mm-hmm. So if he gets two of these a year, he's doing okay. Yeah. And I'll bet he gets way more than two a year. Yeah, could be. Yeah, it's just a shame. Yeah, it is a shame. All right, well, that is my story. What do you got for us, Joe? Dave, my story comes from Brian Fung at CNN. Okay. And the story is that the Federal Communication Commission, the FCC, mm-hmm. uh, today, as we're recording this, it'll be a week after the re- recording drops, but it, it says it is immediately outlawing scam robocalls featuring fake or artificial intelligence-generated voices. Hmm. Uh, so the FCC, this is a, a unanimous FCC uh, panel vote. Hmm. The FCC has a, a three or five people on it. I can't remember. Uh, the... Yeah, I think there are three members. It's either three or five, but I think it's three. But but I'll say it's unusual for the FCC to be unanimous on yeah. things these days, as, as divided as things are it, these it days. It tends to be pretty partisan. Yeah. Um, but this extends the robocall rules to cover unsolicited AI deepfake calls. Hmm. Who solicits AI deepfake calls? Uh, aren't wouldn't you say that all AI deepfake calls would be unsolicited? Yes, I would. Right, I, I would. Yes, yes, I, I would say that is a that is descriptive rather than differentiating the word right. un, unsolicited. <laughs> Correct. This new ruling extends the existing law uh, by recognizing those voices as artificial under federal law. Okay, and so. Uh, this there's a quote in here from Jessica Rosen Warsel, mm-hmm. yep. uh, and she says, "quote Bad actors are using AI generated voices in unsolicited robocalls to extort vulnerable family members, imitate celebrities, and misinform voters, and we're putting these fraudsters uh, behind these robocalls on notice." Now, the scam robocalls most recently that they were talking uh, that they're referencing here is. Uh, these voices they or these calls that came in New Hampshire, right? That were impersonating Joe Biden, encouraging people not to go to the uh, polls for the state's primary. Right now, he said, "Save your vote." Right. The Sa- robo the robo call said, the, "Save your yeah, vote." The robo, yeah, robo Joe <laughs> robo Biden said, Joe "Save Biden. your vote." Yeah. Save your vote for what, Joe? <laughs> right. um, it's. Uh, I don't know how effective this is to the average voter, and I don't know what impact this has in a primary election. Right. Uh, here in the United States, we have uh, we have to have our primary election to decide which candidates are going to be advanced by the parties that right. we have in this country. Uh, and there are numerous different ways that happens. It happens by voting. Um, and if you have a large enough party, like the two big ones are the Democratic and the Republican Party, then you get put on state-sponsored ballots. Then there's the Green Party, where you can go in and vote for it. You can't vote for the Libertarian Party. The, they actually decide who their nominee is going to be based on the amount of money they raise mm-hmm. uh, for the campaign. Uh, but any any party that's large enough, that has enough constituents to actually say, we want to be on the primary val- ballot, they can do that. Yeah. So by saying to voters, stay home and don't vote, um, you're only going to impact the people that were going to vote in that party's primary anyway. Right? Unless it's like an open primary. Is New Hampshire an open primary? I don't know, Joe. But I, I don't either. I'm, I'm wondering what the usefulness of this. But in a general election, this could be very disruptive. Something like this could be very disruptive. Uh, Joe Biden or somebody impersonating Joe Biden coming home or calling home and saying, don't, don't bother coming to the polls. We've already won the election. Thanks for your support. Right. That would be bad. I don't see how effective this is for a primary. But anyway, 
Uh, well, for I mean, suppose you had a really tight primary uh, between, you know, you have two candidates who are in a tight primary and... Uh, that, that's true. You get a bunch of robocalls that alleges to be from one of them saying, right, like, hey, don't don't bother voting today. Like it's, Republican primaries right now, there is no incumbent candidate. So there's yeah. a bunch of candidates running for the Republican nomination. Yeah, I mean, my but, sense is that this is the FCC just trying to nip this in the bud. Yeah, trying to get out in front of this. Yeah. Um, so here's, here's something that's interesting is authorities said this week that they had linked those calls, those one is impersonating Biden, uh, to a Texas man and two of his companies and there is an ongoing investigation that could lead to civil and criminal penalties. Yep. So this is already illegal. Right. right. So here's my question about this ruling. Does this help? Does this do anything? Is this effective at all? Do you, do you anticipate this having any impact on the uh, frequency or the effectiveness of these robocalls? Well, I think if it, uh, I think if you take this ruling, which the public, the the publicizing of this ruling combined with the potential prosecution of the parties that did this specific case, I think they're hoping that that'll keep more people from doing it. Yeah, so, I, think, sure. I think the prosecution of people, and, and maybe, the, maybe the publication will, but it, it, I think those two things will impact people who are clowning about these kind of things. You know, can we do it? Can you think... Do you think we get into it? The people that really have the malicious intent, uh, and particularly foreign actors, are not going to be uh, dissuaded by this. I don't think this is going to have any impact on any foreign foreign actor doing something like this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think part of what they're saying here is that if you do this, we will be able to find you. Yes. And yeah, and so there's that. So I I. Th- I think, uh, well, I'm, I'm on board with this, obviously. I don't want fake robocalls going out to anybody. I don't, the, the fewer robocalls I get, the, the happier I am. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I certainly don't need AI-generated robocalls. You know, it, I had one the other day that was something, and I, was, I asked a question, and I got a response that was very similar to the first statement, and I'm like, I don't think you're a human, and I hung up. Mm. So... If th- that if this will stop that kind of call, I'm okay with that. Yeah. yeah I mean, the FCC I'm, does get to make these these regulations on a regular basis. They do have that authority, uh, and it's right. like you said, like we've said already, this was a unanimous vote, which is something rare. Yeah. Uh, in FCC uh, FCC voting history. Yeah. I, I the thing is, I mean, I don't think there's much ambiguity that this is a peril. Right. To the integrity of our elections. Yeah. So they're trying to get in front of this as quickly as possible. The other element of the, and, and particularly as we are officially, you know, in the election year, it, we are underway. <laughs> or what is it? You Please hold s- on to the bar. Silly, silly season. season. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but the other thing that I think this reflects is how um, these agencies like the FCC and also we've seen um, the FTC right. going after um, some of the data aggregation companies in the past few weeks. Uh, so we've got the agencies who, given the inaction of Congress and the inability of Congress to take action on some of these things, the agencies are saying, okay, something needs to be done. We're going to do it. We're going to take the authority that we believe has been granted to us and we're going to take action here. Right. And so I think that's what we're seeing here. And uh, yeah, I think it's a good thing. I, I would agree with, in this case, 
and probably in the case, I haven't looked into the FTC taking apart these data broker companies or going after these data broker companies, but these data broker companies are not good for anybody. Yeah, the FTC is coming at them saying that uh, their casual approach to sharing certain types of data could lead to uh, real harm to people. And yes. so because of that, they have the authority to go in and uh, take action. Yeah, good. And I think that's realistic. Good. All right, well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Chuck, who writes, Dave and Joe, this was a particularly poignant example of a fish that will probably become much more prevalent with the upcoming tax season. Mm. It's, it's that time of year, Dave. It's tax season. So uh, we're going we're gonna to start seeing tax fraud uh, emails, and Chuck has sent this one along. Uh, okay. It uh, looks really official. It does. It has the IRS logo at the top. Mm-hmm. It says it's from Internal Revenue Services. Uh, <laughs> red flag number one. <laughs> it goes like this. As a record, we need to confirm your billing addresses, information to complete your 5,029... No. Five million twenty nine. I guess these are European uh, numbers, Joe. Right. Five thousand twenty nine dollars tax. See, they're using a comma instead of a, a a period in between the zeros, which is decidedly European and not American. So, no, but they're not doing it consistently. Red flag number two. Right. Yeah. It's it's like the comma between the 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 thousand periods, and then the uh it, where there should be a decimal point for cents. Yeah. There's a comma. All right. So. Very confusing. $5,029 tax refund for 2024 fiscal. Please sign to your account online to check your tax refund status. More details about the change we made to your tax return. We changed the amount claimed as recovery rebate credit on your tax return. The error was in one or more of the following. The social security number of one or more individuals claimed as a qualifying dependent was missing or incomplete. The last name of one or more individuals claimed as the qualifying dependent does not match our records. One or more individuals claimed as a qualifying dependent exceeds the age limit. That's it. That's it. That's the end of it. <laughs> uh, down at the bottom of the email, there's some very official-looking verbiage that looks like it may have been taken directly from an IRS piece of stationery. Okay. Um, I don't know, but there is a big uh, blue link right here in the middle that says, sign into your account. Ah, there it is. Yeah. That's what the goal is here, to get access to your uh, IRS account, maybe. I, I don't yeah, know. probably. Uh, steal your refund. Steal your refund yep. or file a refund on, on your behalf or file a tax return on your behalf. Right, with a big fat refund. With a big fat <laughs> refund, right. And then they get it. Um, right, right. Yeah, interesting. A uh, couple, couple things stand out aside from the obvious bad grammar. The IRS does not refer to a year as a fiscal year. They refer to them as tax years. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't... I mean, this just screams not from the IRS. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, the IRS is one of those organizations that ca catches people's attention, it, well, demands people's attention. When, Whenever I hear the terms IRS from somebody else, they get my full and undivided attention. <laughs> that's right. So, <laughs> that's, hey, the IRS, what? <laughs> Doesn't matter what the next sentence is. Yeah. You know, yeah. but I'm listening to it. Yeah. Uh, these yeah. guys, uh, you know, I, I grew, like I said, I grew up in an in a accounting household. Ah. And um, I have a healthy respect for the, the force these guys wield. <laughs> that's right. That's right. 
All right. Well, thank you, Chuck, for sending that in. We do appreciate it. And again, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at n2k.com. We were talking about mitigating cyber threats to your organization before your users even see them. The new Fish ER Plus from Nobefore was developed to help you supercharge your organization's email security defenses. How? You get a unique crowdsourcing advantage. More than 10 million highly trained Nobefore end users from across the globe catch and report malicious email that makes it through all the filters. Nobefore's Threat Lab then validates it with AI and with human researchers. Fish ER Plus blocks phishing threads other tools have missed and proactively removes them from your users' inboxes. Not quite time travel, but we think you'll agree it's a vital capability in any InfoSec professional's arsenal. Visit knowbefore.com slash products slash fish ER dash plus to learn more. That's knowbefore.com slash products slash fish ER dash plus. And we thank Nobefore for sponsoring our show. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Aaron Walton. He is a threat intel analyst with an organization called Expel. And they recently put out an annual threat report. Here's my conversation with Aaron Walton. We started doing this report within the last three years. Uh, we have a pretty wide customer base, and in doing so, we get to see a lot of what's going on within a large number of industries. So we chose to start collecting this data and start getting a broad look at things. One of the things we also want to do continually at Expel is talk about ways customers can improve their environment. That's been one of our goals as well. So we'll talk about what we're seeing and also what resilience can be put in place to improve these situations. Well, let's dig into the report here. What are some of the highlights or the, the things that stood out to you? We talk about a, a number of different areas because we end up supporting endpoint cloud infrastructure. We do a lot in the identity space and we also have a phishing service. So some of the things that stood out to me, I think, one of my favorite stories comes in when we talk about identity. Um, and this is because we had a few incidents involving a very prolific actor known as the COM. This is a group of individuals. It also includes some other named threat actors, such as Scattered Spider. And they have been in the news quite a bit recently. But within some of the customer environments that we watch over, uh, some of these attacks were mitigated. And part of that was because these environments had these stronger authentication controls in their environment. And one of the reasons I, I like this is because we don't talk enough about the successes with when attacks like these end up getting thwarted. I, I think we can often talk about uh, some of these controls, such as just requiring managed devices or 2FA or MFA, but we don't talk enough about the successes that those can bring. Well, let's talk about that then. I mean, when you look at, you know, what would be, a, a, I guess, a typical deployment of, of this sort of uh, identity technology versus what you would describe as being a best practice, what's the contrast between those two? More of the enhanced situation is ensuring that 
you're using multi-factor wherever you're able to. It's fairly easy to implement technology, but then you have to always go an extra step to ensure that you have multi-factor involved. These technically, it will work within the environment if you don't have it, but there's always that needed extra step. Mm. Uh, similarly, with one of these other stronger controls, um, where you're requiring authentication from known network areas or you're requiring authentication from managed devices, again, people logging in remotely, it works if you don't have the configuration set up. So it takes the extra step, but they can really uh, make a large difference. Can we talk about um, social engineering? I, I know that's something that you and your colleagues took a look at in this report. What are some of the trends you're tracking with that? Uh, one of the trends that we talked about within the report was um, a campaign that's been targeting the hospitality industry quite heavily. And this is a campaign where uh, the threat actor is sending emails that is imitating a customer and they're asking a question or they're asking for help. And within the email, they've provided a link that is attached and attached to that, it will download an information stealing malware. This is something that we've been seeing going on for about the past year, and it seems to be pretty steady and keeps going on. And what are mitigations for something like this? What do you recommend for folks to protect themselves? It's tough in some ways, because when we're talking about social engineering and we're talking about this situation, the targeted Individuals are usually those customer service representatives that are on the front end that whose job is to really help individuals. So some of my recommendations are to make sure you have strong software controls. So if they shouldn't be able to download that, then that needs to be blocked. Sometimes you can do that through whitelisting what applications a user should run. This also makes sense in situations where this user might not have a lot of uses for the computer. So in those situations, you can also consider, hey, do they need a full Windows computer? Are there other opportunities such as a Chromebook where Windows malware won't run? So unfortunately, I think it's an area where we have to be a bit creative, where we're thinking about what ways can we limit the attack surface for this particularly targeted set of users. Hmm. You know, one of the things that caught my eye in the report was this notion that uh, credentials are currency. Can, can you explain this, that to us? What do you mean by that? Uh, in regards to cloud infrastructure incidents, the main thing that we saw was a secret compromise or credential compromise in that regard. Hmm. Secret compromise being the, the tokens that you're using when you're communicating with cloud instances in order to make changes, um, often used with APIs so that uh, the API is able to take actions on behalf of the organization or behalf of a web application. Yeah, one of the other things that, that I noticed was uh, you all pointed out that we're seeing some of the same malware families year after year, that th these these folks keep coming back for more. Yeah, that's something that's very unfortunate. Um, that's something I had wanted to call out particularly because there's a number of threat actors that we've seen for years and haven't really been able to do anything about. Part of this is because uh, they are typically on the early end of an infection, where typically whoever's delivering ransomware is getting a lot more attention and is getting the attraction or the attention rather of 
the government and for those that are able to carry out law enforcement. And what industries are you seeing that that are being particularly targeted here? Do do any particular verticals stand out as as having a, a target on their back? These three actors that we are talking about that we see continually, particularly, don't seem to have particular industry in mind. A lot of these threat actors that we see all the time are ones that are selling initial access to other threat actors so that if they want to steal data or if they want to uh, use ransomware, they're able to do that. There's one threat actor that we've seen continually that's known as Gootloader. The lures that they use and the social engineering that they use is for documents that contain legal agreements or something of that sort. They use a attack technique called search engine optimization poisoning or SEO poisoning. And this is when you take a lot of keywords and you stuff it into something. And a result with Google searches, when you're looking for something like a legal agreement, uh, you might find a web page that is infected that is being used by this threat actor Gootloader. And the, the attacker has actually been using the same um, landing page for five or six years now. Uh, so when you click the link, what it ends up showing you is a forum post where it shows a newbie that's asking, hey, I want to find this legal agreement. And the name of it happens to be the same thing that you searched for. And the administrator of the forum says, oh, hey, here is the legal agreement you're looking for. And uh, if you click that, what you end up downloading is a zipped JavaScript file that when executed, sets up persistence and provides initial access to that host. What are the take-homes here? I mean, in, in, in terms of the information that you all have, all have gathered here, what are your recommendations for folks to, to better protect themselves in this day and age? I think one of our top recommendations is defense in depth. Because within each of these attack techniques, there's always multiple points where you're able to detect something. And you want to make sure that you have those detections and the security tools in place so that you can detect that activity. It also becomes important to test and make sure that those are working accurately, making sure that the logging is available, making sure that you understand what the activity might look like when it does alert. Joe, what do you think? Dave, all too often, we in this business talk about security failures, but we don't really get to talk about the successes. Mm. And this is kind of a problem in the industry. Yeah. Uh, I was reading something the other day. Uh, I think it was on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I don't know what drug me. I, I was going in to do my weekly LinkedIn check, and I actually looked around. And somebody was saying, <laughs> how do we justify our, um, our budget to management or to, you know, to this senior leadership, mm-hmm. if we're doing a good job, it's really hard to do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you're saying nothing happened. Right. That's great. Congra- look, congratulations board. We spent all this money and nothing happened. Right. But there's always money to clean out the mess. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah. always money to clean up the mess. Right. Um, and I, I don't know. I think that money spent on prevention is well worth the effort. Um, yeah, it's just harder well to, it's, it's harder to, um, quantify that. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. well, it's almost impossible to quantify no impact, right? <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the, the, uh, the situation. It's hard. It's, it's, it's impossible to, to quantify it. 
Yeah. Uh, or maybe it's just that it's too easy to quantify it and the quantity is zero. Mm-hmm. It, it could be one of the, I don't know. I get wrapped around the axle on this one a lot <laughs> on how to, how to voice it. But the problem still is plain to everybody that has to be part of this. Yeah. Um, also, if your risk model allows restricting logins, like Aaron is talking, from known er- areas or from managed devices, you should do that. Yeah, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or if your risk model requires it, I would say do it. Um, it's inter- interesting that there is a current campaign. He talked about an, an email campaign uh, targeting people in the hospitality industry that is just a link to malware. Yeah. And th- you know, I thought that was, I'm like, you know, that stuff still, I mean, I, I'm not surprised that it still goes on. That, that, that doesn't catch me off guard. But, you know, I, we still have to cover the basics mm-hmm. uh, in this industry. Uh, especially with with the people, yeah, we always get new people coming into all these different organizations. Uh, they all have to be trained. They all have to be able to recognize these things. Um, I, I think that surface area is an interesting, Aaron has an interesting way of looking at attack surface, mm-hmm. right? First thing he says is if you can do application whitelisting, do that. That's very helpful. That yeah. would prevent any of these malware attacks with you know from emails from running because, hey, this software isn't whitelisted. No, you're not running it. Right. But he also brings up a, an excellent point. Can a Chromebook work for someone like a customer service agent? Mm-hmm. If their entire software suite is is web hosted, then absolutely a Chromebook will work for that. Yeah. You get them nice Chromebooks, right? <laughs> you don't give them the little crappy $200 ones. Right. Because right. that will, yeah, they'll be miserable. But but the security ramifications of that are are real. Yeah. Um Speaking of cloud services, I mean that that's software as a service, but you know the other services you have are cloud services. But if you lose your your tokens to an information stealer that you use to access the cloud via their APIs, that's the ball game. I mean mm. that's that's really bad. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, those need to be protected. Uh, you know, I I don't do a lot of cloud work, but I understand those things are you know they're sometimes people just put them in hard-coded files and that's where they stay. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and I've seen that uh, before even the cloud infrastructure was going on. You know, doing code reviews, you'd see passwords for accessing services just in the code. Right, right. right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, somebody ever decompiled that, they'd know exactly how to log in <laughs> or just ran strings on it, really. That's all, you don't even need to decompile it. Uh, threat actors that Expel is monitoring are targeting uh, just about everyone. They're going across the industry. And some of them are using this search engine optimization poisoning mm-hmm. that is, um, first off, it irritates me that search engine, that SEO is a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is. They're, they're, guessing, they're reverse engineering the, the algorithms that these search engines use. And they're pretty good at it. Um, and then there's a follow-on or the... Um, a specialized attack, not follow-on, specialized attack that goes after people looking for uh, legal documents. Right. And just leads them to malware. That's an interesting niche. I wonder why they're doing that. Maybe because people that are looking for these kind of uh, legal documents are people that are known to have a certain amount of money. Yeah. So maybe yeah. that's what the what the goal is. Uh, defending yourself from any of these attacks always. Defense in depth is a great great tactic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, have have multiple points of failure along the way. Uh, we talk about the cyber kill chain frequently. 
Yeah. Uh, it's a long chain, so there are lots of opportunities along it to, to stop these things. So Defense in Depth can help you with that. Again, we hear multi-factor authentication. Uh, and a great suggestion from Aaron, test the system and make sure everything works. You know, do some penetration tests and see if it raises red flags. Uh, see if those kind of things happen. All right. Well, our thanks to Aaron Walton for joining us. Again, he is from Expel, and we do appreciate him taking the time. We want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Know Before. They are experts in helping users do the right thing through new school security awareness training. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Stokes. Our mixer is Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producers are Jennifer Iben and Brandon Karp. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 